0: The following content is derived from the Equip ministry of Ashen Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. Join us the next six weeks as we work through balancing the tensions of being primarily a citizen of heaven while also physically being a citizen of earth. We'll start by tearing down our existing and often worldly thought process around politics and building up a biblical perspective of the relationship between the church and the public square. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. So we gotta get into things tonight. Um, so t- I'll review kind of where we've been a little bit later, but I do want to before I pray put the phone number up there again. Um, so the sixth week, so we're on week three. Uh, and so the sixth week will be a q and a and I'm gonna start that evening with questions that you all have texted, and then you will also be able to ask questions. That evening as well. And I'll do my best to answer them. Um, You know me, I don't mind saying I don't know. And there are many times where I've said I don't know in my life. And when I don't know, I'll tell you. So I might not know the answer, but if you text me beforehand, there's a better chance I'll have an answer. Um, So use that number. And that's not going to stay up as usual. So if you want to write that down now, when inspiration comes, you'll have it, and then you can use it later. But let's pray together. Lord, we thank you tonight for gathering us. And Lord, we we often don't even think about privileges and freedoms and, and things that we are able to enjoy until those things are not available to us. And Lord, most of the people in this room if not the overwhelming majority of us have grown up in a context where we are free uh, to worship, to worship Jesus Christ according to conscience, according to your word. And um, Lord, we want to give thanks for that. That's a freedom that many, many people throughout history and in the world today do not have. And God, that we, we thank you that we do. And we pray for those brothers and sisters in the world right now, Uh, Lord, who do not have that freedom and who are persecuted and who do have to meet in secret and, uh, Lord, with threat of violence and even death because of their faith. And, Lord, we pray for courage for them, protection for them, and the spread of the gospel among them. And we pray that you would guide us tonight in understanding your word and, and where your word intersects with history and with our context and what we're dealing with in our world. And Lord, we just pray that you would light the way uh, for, for all of this. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So um, in tonight I want to talk to you about the political church uh, and that the way that's termed up there. I, Immediately, probably makes people uncomfortable, and so tonight my my goal is to have everybody feeling better about saying the political church, because you understand what I'm trying to say when I say it, and what I think the Bible's saying. Obviously, it doesn't matter what I say; what the Bible says is, is our authority. So that's my goal tonight. Um, and so to begin, I just want to start off with kind of a, an, an illustration from history. Um, as you all know, we live in a nation that for many hundred for hundreds of years slavery was uh, institutionally legal was practiced uh and not just slavery because you you read the Bible there's slavery in the Bible. I I have explained this all the time. The slavery in the Bible pales in comparison to the wickedness of slavery in the United States of America. The slavery in the Bible was often voluntary (laughs) people would enslave themselves if they were in debt or to attach themselves to someone more wealthy. Those slavery at that time had a specific time period attached. It wasn't based upon race. Uh, All kinds of people could be enslaved. Not that it was preferable. I'm not arguing for a defense of biblical slavery, but there's a difference. The slavery that we practice in the United States was based upon race. It was not voluntary. Those people were stolen and it was perpetual. It was unending and it was passed down through heredity. So you, your children, if you were a slave, your children would be enslaved. And it's a, it's, it's a terrible blight upon our nation's history. You know, the same nation Arguing for universal human rights, the same nation founded upon life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was simultaneously forbidding a whole race of people from enjoying life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And and thankfully, you know, it took a civil war, but thankfully that institution ended. Um, In the South, prior to the Civil War, Interestingly, the church gave a lot of enslaved people rights that they did not receive outside of the church. And so, for example, uh, slaves were not permitted to testify in the South in courts of law. So if if a slave saw something, a murder or or theft, and, and they were brought in as a witness, their testimony was not allowed. It was not credible. It was not listened to, it was not heeded. And this may seem like a small concession, but in many, many churches, evangelical churches, while slavery was still being practiced, yet enslaved members were able, because of the gospel, they were seen as fellow human beings saved by grace, just like we are. And so you have higher dignity happening in churches, many, many churches, churches operated within this system of injustice, and I'm not saying the churches were right. Some of them tried their best to be. Many of them fell woefully short, but all of them operated on different standards than than society. So for example, in Savannah, Georgia, First Baptist Church, 1816, a white member was accused of killing a slave. And though that white member was not brought to justice in society by the law, because the only witnesses who saw it were two other slaves, that church excommunicated that member on the testimony of those two slaves. And so the church is acting faithfully, politically we may even say, as a moral court over its members, regardless of what society has to say. Let's just think about that for a moment. You have similar things happening. You can read the little minute books from, from all over all over the place. In fact, if you want to show the first slide, Joseph, uh, you can't really see that well, but on the left is a photocopy of a minute book um, In I think, yeah, minute book from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Jessamine County, Kentucky, established in 1801. You can go find these books. University of Kentucky has a ton of them, and you can see their handwritten notes of the record of them disciplining their members. Enslaved members, non-enslaved members, adultery, drunkenness, theft, slander, not showing up for church. I mean, all of these things, attending a 4th of July barbecue. And we go, well, that's crazy. Why would they not be allowed to do that? Well, 4th of July barbecues were associated with revelry, drunkenness. And that was the problem. It wasn't that they were celebrating the 4th of July or that they were eating barbecues that they were associating with this lifestyle over here. In 1851, these are interesting to me, but in 1851, Atlanta First Baptist Church excommunicated a white member for fortune-telling, and the primary witness was a slave member who said she told him that she used a deck of cards, and I quote, to tell fortunes with, with when her demon came. Excommunicated. Excommunicated. Baptist churches on the frontier. So think about this with me. When the United States started, everything was on the East Coast, right? Everything was British colony. As the United States got established, settlers began going west. And you know the stories, right? The, the west was wild. Kentucky was the west at one time. And so as settlers start pouring over the Appalachian Mountains into Kentucky, into this untapped land, this wild land full of Native Americans and just bountiful you know, soil and the ability to grow crops and thrive and prosper and land and livestock and wild animals and all the things that, that, that people wanted, there were not courts set up yet. So how did you govern people? Oftentimes, churches were the first institutions in these whole geographic regions. They were the only institutions seeking to regulate the behavior of their members. Church discipline amongst Baptists was practiced universally until about the time of the Civil War in America. Church discipline. I'm not talking about every once in a while. I'm talking about these churches would meet every month, and they would call their members to account for, for, for what they had done, for the sins that they were that they were caught in. things that, that like drunkenness, abuse, slander, adultery. I've mentioned the list earlier. I mean, just you name it. This was a common practice, and then somewhere after the Civil War, Individualism took over, Um, the pragmatism, just the desire to grow and compete in the religious marketplace and church discipline disappeared. One of the most interesting cases that I've come across in my research happened at Forks of Elkhorn Church in Lexington, Kentucky on the second Saturday in January 1807. Second Saturday in january eighteen oh seven, and this is a quote from the Minic Book, complaint brought against Sister Esther Bulwares Winnie. That's a slave. Sister Esther Bulwares Winnie. First for saying she once thought it her duty to serve her master and mistress, but since the Lord had converted her, she had never believed that any Christian kept negroes or slaves. Second, for saying she believed there was thousands of white people wallowing in hell for their treatment to Negroes, and she did not care if there was as many more. So she, this enslaved woman who's a member of the church who they had baptized, is brought up on charges for saying that slavery's wrong, but then adding that she didn't care if there were many white people wallowing in hell for the way that they treated their slaves. Winnie was eventually excluded from fellowship in that church. Interestingly, around the same exact time, the pastor of that church, a guy by the name of William Hickman, had been brought up on charges by the church as well. What did he do? He invited a minister to preach at his house, a minister who happened to have been excommunicated by the Elkhorn Baptist Association for preaching emancipation. So the pastor is being brought up on charges. The 13 members there voted. Five voted that he was in error. Eight voted that he was not. So William Hickman continued until 10 months later when he came before the church conscience still stricken over this issue, and he resigned. And here's the quote from the minute book, because he was distressed on account of the practice of slavery as being tolerated by the members of the Baptist society. He said, I can't do it anymore. I refuse to continue as long as slavery is tolerated here. So all of this is going on in churches, in churches. These conversations you expect to be happening in, in you know, Senate rooms and, and you know, state legislatures, but this is happening in churches. Until Kentucky Baptist churches at this time pretty much universally decided that slavery was from that point forward going to be a political issue And banned any discussion in their churches one way or the other. They did not want the issue discussed. So ironically, these Baptist churches that God has called to regulate the lives of members, of their members, right? To to hold them accountable, they're taking the greatest moral issue, the issue of greatest moral consequence at that time, and they're removing it from their jurisdiction, and they're placing it over here in the arena of politics, saying, we don't want to mess with that. We're going to let you deal with that. We're not talking about it anymore. In fact, anybody who brings it up will be excommunicated. So listen, when I say to you, and you've heard me say this before, that the problem is that is not that churches are too political, but the problem is that churches aren't political enough. (laughs) This is what I'm talking about. The fact that churches a long time ago in our cultural context decided to delegate this type of authority to whoever else, and we don't do this anymore. This is extremely significant. So so hear me, when I say churches aren't political enough, I am not saying churches aren't partisan enough. You've already heard me bash partisanship. That's not what I'm saying. We have to define what we mean when we talk about politics. Politics is three components. This is from a book by Jonathan Lehman. This is what we're going to define politics. You say the church needs to be political, define what you mean when you say that. This is what politics is. Politics is three things. The institutional activity of governance, one. Two, over an entire population. Three, backed by the power of coercion. So all three of those things have to be present. The institutional activity of governance, so official governing authority. There are rules and there are regulations over an entire population. You think about the government, the politics of the United States of America. There's a federal government. There are state governments. There are local county governments. There are city governments. You go to a school, there's a politics there, right? There's jurisdiction, there's rules, there's regulations, there's a principal who's in charge and backed by the power of coercion. We know what the power of coercion is out here in the, in the state. Outside of the church, you have prisons, right? We have fines, we have probation. We have, if it's really bad, we have death penalties, right? So all of these things in the church, we have what Jesus gave us. We have excommunication. We're going to get to all that in a little while. So week one, I argued against partisanship. Last week, we talked about what the purpose of government is. The purpose of government God has ordained government to administer justice toward protecting life, to provide the necessary conditions for human beings to flourish in their calling to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and to provide the platform for the church to fulfill its mission to make disciples of all nations. Government power is limited, Notice that it's not government making disciples. It's not government fulfilling the mission. It's government keeping everybody alive and keeping justice reigning so that God's work, so that the work of God's people can come in and get done. Remember, we compared it to government is like a babysitter right? When you hand your kids off to a babysitter, you're not telling them that they're responsible to teach your children everything they need to know for life, right? The babysitter's not there to instruct them on how to worship Jesus, right? You say to the babysitter, hey, please keep my kids alive and feed them and have them go to bed on time, right? That's the way government's supposed to function. God has entrusted government with this temporary duty to keep things going in the world to keep people alive, to keep justice reigning. So government's role is limited. So what we're going to talk about tonight is how under this understanding of the limitation of government's authority, there is a higher authority on earth than government. That Jesus has commissioned his church to be the highest authority on earth to represent his authority and and so to help us think about this i just want you to think about this question and uh, somebody can answer i haven't heard from i I haven't asked y'all to answer anything so anybody can shout this out but why did god create the world To bring glory to himself. That's what we believe, isn't it? The Bible talks about the glory of God from all over it. God's name, God's glory, God being worshipped, God being exalted. The Psalms are about God being worshipped. What's the problem with the world then? If the purpose of the world is for God to be glorified, what's the problem? Yes, he is not being worshipped. We fail. The Westminster shorter catechism, what you can go back, it's on that last slide. What is the what is the chief end of man? y'all know that one? You ever heard that one? That's the first question that they, the Presbyterians would train their children to answer. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We have been put on this earth to glorify, make much of God, and to enjoy Him forever because He is glorified when we enjoy Him forever. Now let me ask you this. Does any earthly government have the capacity to make that purpose accomplished? The answer is no. The the United States of America, the most powerful nation on this earth, cannot make one single heart worship God the way he's supposed to be worshiped. Can't happen can't happen so we know right off the bat that the government the governments of this world are not up for the task of the main thing that needs to be happening in the world this is where the church comes in you see god hasn't left the world without the means to bring this about he has given his church authority so we are going to there's so much to say each night and I, and I try my best to organize it, but we're going to land in Matthew. But before we get to Matthew, I want to talk about something from Romans. So open your Bibles. If you have them to Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 23. We alluded to this last week. And, and I just, the reason I want to read it is I want you to see one thing here, all right? This is Paul, and if you know Romans, Paul's kind of given us sort of the story of the world here at the beginning of Romans, right? Because he's eventually going to get to Jesus and justification and what, I mean, really Romans is this beautiful you know, st- the story of what God's done in the world through Jesus and to save sinners. But before he gets to Jesus, what do you got to do? You got to talk about why we need Jesus, right? You got to know you're sick before the doctor can come, right? And so in Romans 1, Paul is telling us all what's wrong with the world. He's telling this church in Rome what's wrong. He says, for the wrath of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. You go, well, they don't all know the truth. What about people who've never heard? Well, Paul's anticipating that. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is Paul saying nature reveals the glory of God. There is no creature who can say, I didn't know Because God has clearly left testimony about himself in the very fabric of creation. So God's wrath is just. For although, and he's still explaining what they've done wrong. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, and that's the word that I want to focus on, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There is no such thing as a person who does not worship. This is really important. It, the world is not divided between christians and non-worshippers the world is divided between right worshipers and wrong worshipers so this is really important because when we start talking about politics we need to understand That we're not dealing, when we go out into the world and we have debates on issues like abortion, or we have debates on issues like racial injustice, and we have debates on issues like how to treat immigrants, we are not having those debates with people who are just secular and don't have any values. We are having those debates with people who are worshiping oftentimes just as much as we are, but they're worshiping something false. It's really important. Everybody's worshiping. Everybody's placing ultimate value on something or someone and making decisions in light of that. And so the issue. If we want to make a difference, we go out there and we argue for justice. We go out there and we want just laws, right? We go out there and we try our best. We bring, by the way, don't ever leave your values at the doorstep because the other people on the other side of the religious debate, they're not leaving their values, right? They're bringing their worship right into the arena. You don't believe me? Just look at the headlines right now and all the ideologies with the transgender stuff. That's a religion, (laughs) That is a religion that people are believing. That is not based in science. It is the opposite of that, right? It is an ideology that people are blindly following. They're not checking that at the door when these debates are happening. And we don't either. We don't go in and hide the fact that, oh, the Bible says this. No, we go in and we make our argument. We say, this is for justice. This is what's right. This is what's true. This is what's good. These are the kinds of laws that we should have. But as we make those debates, we can't ever forget that those just laws are never going to change the people we're arguing with. We're not going to change their hearts through our political action. So don't hear me as saying, then don't worry about justice, because I think we ought to worry about it, particularly in a democratic republic where we're the ones responsible for the way government goes. But we always have to be mindful of the limitations of government, right? There's never been a law that changed a heart. It is only Jesus that does that. So, Richard John Newhouse, he's a, the Catholic up there. Um, this, he wrote this book called The Naked Public Square. And he's basically making this argument Or there's no such thing as a naked public square. Like everybody wants you to check your religion and come into the public square and have these conversations about these big issues without reference to any religion. And his argument, the quote from the book of the thesis, he says, when recognizable religion is excluded, the vacuum will be filled by ersatz religion, which is just a fancy way of saying a substitute. Substitute religion by religion bootlegged into public space under other names. There's never been a religious void in any square where debates are happening on big issues. There's never been one of those squares that didn't have religion informing everyone's views. So if you take out official religion, he's saying, so you take out Christianity and Islam and all the official religions, they're not allowed here. His point is other substitute religions are going to come in by different names. So that's going to always happen. The public square is a battleground of God's. And so, as Christians, we go into that public square, we advocate for truth, justice, and beauty as God has defined it, but we have to keep in mind that whatever we accomplish politically, it is not what Jesus has ultimately called his church to do. Ultimately, we have a higher calling. There are different domains. Political action cannot change human hearts. I, you know, I've talked to you guys before about my mother who was killed by an ex-boyfriend. And, you know, th- that whole issue and how to think about that has really help me kind of understand these distinctions, because as a citizen, I can come over here and say, I want him to face justice, right? I want her killer to face justice. I want him to receive the justice for the actions, the just justice. I want him to be in prison for the rest of his life, for what he did, right? But then I come over here as a Christian, right? And I I say, I want him to know the grace of God in Christ. You see the two domains. And you can act consistently in each one. They don't contradict. You, You can pray for justice at the same time as you pray for someone's soul. And so this is the distinctions that we have to keep making. So there's a lot of people who will say, well, when you say the church is political, you're just talking about institutional religion. I'm not really into institutional religion. So we have this glamorized, tell me if you've, have you ever heard this before? This idealistic view of Christianity that pretends that Christianity is just simply individuals wearing WWJD bracelets. So what is Christianity? Christianity, we, we imagine. Have you seen the um, the chosen? Anybody seen the chosen? Pretty, pretty good, right? But but we imagine that that's what Christianity is. That that we are just we're following Jesus, just walking around this ragtag group of people, and we're just doing what Jesus would do, just loving on people, and it's real organic, and you know it's it's spontaneous. And it's not organized, right? It's just the organized religion part. That's the part that we don't like. You know, we, we're, just, we're like the 12 apostles. We're just roaming the earth, just doing kind of what we want to do. I don't like institutional religion. I prefer relationships. Well, listen to me. The problem with that view is the Bible, okay? Institutionalism is simply the application of rules to relationships. So Jonathan Lehman, who wrote Political Church, says institutions exist where two or more individuals relate to one another according to some set of binding principles that commission and constrain the nature of their interactions. Marriage is an institution. If you are married, there is an institution that you're a part of. You say, well, it's really just about love. Well, that's great, but it's also about rules, right? If you want your marriage to be successful, there are certain things that you need to not do. (laughs) And there are certain things that you are obligated to do. There are vows that you make. As soon as you apply rules to the relationship, you are now dealing with an institution. So the question I have for you is this. Did Jesus intend for his people that he saved to just free range it and roam around without any governance or rules, or did he leave behind rules to govern our relationships with each other? That's the question, because that's the difference. But that's how we determine whether the church is an institution or not. Now, clearly, I believe the church is an institution. Jesus did indeed leave principles and rules by which to govern the relationships of his people. I mean, we, we see what Jesus is doing in, in the gospels, but we keep going and we recognize that Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And then the apostles come, and the apostles begin instructing us in the way to build the church. We have these instructions. This is who a pastor needs to be. These are the qualifications of a pastor. These are the qualifications of a deacon. This is how you need to handle straying church members. This is what orderly worship looks like. This is how you practice the Lord's Supper. This is how you practice baptism. This is how you determine who's in and who's out, right? These are the fruits of the Spirit that you should be seeing cultivated. This is the rule that you should love one another as I have loved you. We have all of this instruction. All of that is Jesus leaving us the rules by which our lives are supposed to be governed in the context of the church. So we are an institution. As much as we want to pretend that everything's just spontaneous, the WWJD mentality is good. You know, Paul says, follow Christ as follow me as I follow Jesus, right? So so Jesus is always the model. But we can't have some romantic, idealistic notion of that that bypasses the church. And we also can't pretend like the red letters in our Bible are more authoritative than the rest. The whole Bible is the word of Jesus Christ. He spoke the red letters while he was on earth... He inspired the rest through the Spirit, through the apostles, and we have it today. But it's all His Word. But here's the kicker. My main argument tonight for why the church is institutional, which we're going to get to in just a minute, is is in red letters. (laughs) And that might surprise you. So what are we saying? The local church constitutes a political community that exists to publicly represent King Jesus, to display the righteousness of the triune God, and to pronounce that all the world rightfully belongs to this King and can be reconciled to Him. To restore right worship. That's what the church exists to do. This, that's what government cannot do the local church. Church is just like ours. We publicly administer the new covenant in Christ's blood. The local church makes visible the invisible rule of God's eternal kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. The church is an embassy of the kingdom. Think with me about the way an embassy functions. When Nikki and I were in Uganda trying to get Eden and Elias home, Um, well, I had left by this point, but Nikki ends up going to the embassy to get some paperwork done, and she cries before them to get them. She she had been there five weeks, and there was no end in sight. And so she said, I'm an American citizen. I'm going to go talk to our government. She goes to the embassy. She talks to the government of the United States of America. That embassy in Uganda represents the government. They do not have to pick up the phone and call the White House. When they make a decision, they have been preauthorized to act on behalf of the government of the United States of America. They fully represent the rule of the home nation. They affirm who's in and who's out. If they want to hand my new adopted children passports, they can. And they now have passports. That is how the local church functions on behalf of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are an embassy. Jesus says, and we're going to get to this in just a minute. I know you're like, would you get there already? But all this, like I said, it's so hard to get it all in. But Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. His authority exists when His people gather under the conditions that He has given us. All right, let's see how much time we have. So, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be in Matthew the rest of the night. So, we've got a trio, three passages in Matthew that reveal to us, more fully than anywhere else in Scripture, what Jesus' plan for His church is. The problem is, we often don't read these three passages together, even though they're right here in Matthew, and they they rely on the same images. And we often just don't quite know how to interpret some of the aspects of it. So I'm going to make an argument tonight. So the first passage, and they're all passages that you're familiar with. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. We could get into all that. I'm, I'm not going to why they're saying all that. It's fascinating. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? He's asking his disciples, This is the moment of truth. What do you believe about me? You've been following me around, right? Who do you say that I am? And look at what happens. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the King. The son of the living God, son of the living God, son is a title of equality. You come from him. So you are the one we've been waiting for. The promised son of David, the king, the Messiah, the one who is going to bring God's kingdom and instituted on this earth. And what had Jesus been preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they believe it. Peter says, I believe it. You're him. You're the one. And Jesus answered him. This is our first church membership interview of the, in the Bible, by the way. And Jesus answered him. Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There's only one way you know this. There's only one way that you see Jesus as who he says he is and who he really is. And it is if God in heaven reveals it. It's a supernatural what's happening. And now look at what he says next. And I tell you, you are Peter, Peter's name, Petros, rock, and on this rock, on you, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ because it wasn't time yet. As soon as they start telling people he's the Christ, what happens? He's going to be crucified. So there's so much here. The first thing, because the Catholics say, well, see, this is where we see that Peter's the Pope, right? Which is completely ridiculous. There's no line of apostolic succession being instituted here. Peter represents the (laughs) twelve, He always represents the 12. He's always speaking on behalf of all the others, right? He is standing there as the spokesperson for the apostles. And when Jesus says, upon you, I will build my church. Jesus is, yes, he's talking about Peter. He's talking about the apostles. I would argue he's talking about the, the, what's going to be built on the foundation of the apostles, which is the church. Upon you and upon the confession that you're making. And it's really important because it's not just on Peter. If Peter immediately left this conversation and denied that Jesus was Lord, then the promise that he's going to build his church upon Peter is no more, right? He is going to build his church on Peter, the confessing apostle, the one saying doctrinally who Jesus really is, the one saying that Jesus is King. And we know that's how it works because you can't separate The ambassador from the king's edict, right? Peter is the ambassador. How is he going to do it? Jesus tells him, I am going to build my church on this rock. The gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. I will give you the keys. Jeff Newberry's keys that jingle every time he walks. Josh and Dan do it too. It's weird all these keys jingling jangling, what do those keys represent? Those keys represent authority. If you have the keys to this church, what do you have the ability to do? This building. Open the door and shut the door. You say, get on out of here. I got the keys. I'm locking and you're not coming back in. And you can also unlock and you say, come on in everybody. Come on in. The keys are the authority. These are the keys of authority. These are the keys given to bind and loose. Look at the imagery. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does it mean to bind and loose? well, see, here's, here's what happens. This has happened to me several times. I've made this point. This is my favorite part. When I get to this point with somebody and they say, okay, I hear what you're saying. But that, that's talking about the universal church. The universal church. You know how you're just a Christian and you're part of the universal church. And you're you're part of the universal church when you sit on your couch. And you're part of the universal church whether you sleep in on Sunday or not. You don't have to do anything. You're you're in because you're in Jesus. Clearly, and you would think by reading this that that's probably what Jesus has in mind, right? Like Jesus isn't just talking about one little local assembly. He's talking about his church. He's talking about all of the churches that gather all over the face of of the world, all over creation. And that's when I say, all right, well, turn with me to Matthew 18 then, and let's find out what kind of church Jesus is talking about. Because this is the next time we see mention of binding and loosing. It's clear that this is the follow-up to that conversation. It's two chapters later, and Jesus gives us another teaching where he mentions the church. There's only two references to the word church in all four Gospels, Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Right here. These two passages go together. You interpret one with the other. This is where Jesus explains to us what it means to bind or loose. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, to the church, to the assembly, to the gathered people. You don't gather with the universal church. You you might think you do when you tune in on the internet to the webcast, but you're not physically gathered. You can't do this unless you're rooted in a local people. You tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, as an outsider, as not a Christian, as not one of my people. Because if you believe, if you say you believe, and you refuse to repent when the church calls you to repent, when the church acting as the embassy of the kingdom of Christ on the authority of the Word of God, and the church says to you, you are in sin, you are disobeying Jesus who you have confessed, and you refuse to repent, Jesus says, render a verdict. Render a verdict. And, and, and look at the weightiness of that verdict. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, there it is again. Jesus just said this in Matthew 16. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven Again, I say to you, see, we love verse 19. We love to pull verse 19 out and say, oh, the church is anywhere where two or three are gathered. But read it in context. He's talking about church discipline. And I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything else, about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven For where two or or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I am present when the church acts on the basis of the keys, binding and loosing. Jesus says, the church is acting with my full authority. Whatever they bind on earth, whatever the church confessing Christ looses on earth, they are representing heaven. They are representing heaven. Now, what is being bound and loosed? Interestingly, in Matthew 16, the word used is whatever. Whatever is bound. And in the Greek, that could mean that that word, whatever, it sounds like an object, but it could also be applied just as easily to a person. It's whatever or whoever. It makes room for both the who and the what. And I think that there's actually a who and a what to what's being bound and loosed. Because you have to remember, what was the basis upon Jesus' promise to build His church? It was the confession, the true doctrinal confession that Jesus is the Christ. So the church is responsible for binding and loosing in the context of doctrine, of making sure that we stay pure and devoted to what Christ has revealed, but also to managing who's included and who's excluded on the basis of that confession. The church is the representative of Jesus on earth for maintaining right doctrine and for overruling, over that's too strong, for disciplining the people. Doctrine, people. Jonathan Lehman summarizes, he says, ultimately, the holder of the keys is being called upon to assess a person's life and profession of faith, and then to make a heavenly sanctioned and public pronouncement affirming or denying the person's citizenship in the kingdom and inclusion in the church. That's why we do membership interviews. That's why we ask for the testimony at baptism. That's why we ask people upon what confession have you come? Because we want people to make the confession that Peter was making. Jesus is Lord. Tell us why you've come to believe that. I was a sinner. Jesus died for my sins to save me. I believe he's the King and the Lord, and he's coming back. I believe his word, right? That confession is the basis for inclusion and exclusion. And this isn't the only place that we see this language. In John 20, 23, Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What's he talking about? He, he's talking to his people. He's saying that there is an authority I'm leaving on this earth. We don't get to just walk around with our Bibles and make it up as we go as individuals. You and I as individuals don't hold the keys to the kingdom. The church holds the keys to the kingdom. Matthew 16 suggests that we must believe the right things to get in. Matthew 18 suggests that we must keep believing the right things (laughs) to stay in. And we've tragically seen this even in our own context, haven't we? Where people made professions of faith and then they denied. They denied Christ. And we say, we have to deal with that, right? We Can't allow that. We're calling you to repent. Matthew 18 anticipates any objection on the basis of the universal church. Jesus's presence signifies that the decision rendered by the local church, the faithful gospel believing local church carries the authority of heaven. Any church that faithfully testifies to Christ's name is authorized to act on his behalf. Notice that it is the congregation's authority. He does not mention the pastor. It is not rule by bishop or rule by pastor. The pastor, have they have a role, and we learn that role later mainly from Paul. Where do pastors fit? The whole congregation possesses the keys together, but pastors are called to train, equip, and lead in using the keys correctly. Pastors are the ones who come in when you get the keys and say, now let me show you how it operates that door. Right? So the church possesses the keys the pastors teach and lead in making sure that the keys are used correctly. And then the last passage, quickly. Matthew 28:18 through20. We know this. Right? We, some of us don't even have to turn here. We know this. All authority in heaven and on earth. So, what do we notice about all these passages? All three of them, heaven and earth linkage, right? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What did Jesus say to Peter? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, where? In heaven. So so there's a linkage between what's happening in heaven and what his people, his church are doing on earth. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. What else is common about the other two passages in this one? They all speak of authority, right? They're all about authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, and we've seen this, I am with you always to the end of the age. What did Jesus say in Matthew 18? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. The great commission is not even given to individuals, it is given to the church. The church owns the commission. When we read Matthew 28, in light of Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, this passage takes on richer meaning. This is the church's deputization ceremony. You ever seen an old western where they're like, who wants to be a deputy? You know, we got to go get the bad guys. I'll do it. You know, you're like, the drunk? You're going to give the drunk a badge? and he's like, All right, and he hands them the badge, and they ride out together. This is Jesus deputizing his church to do what Jesus created us, what God created us to do, to go out in the world and get worshipers for him. This is what we're doing. And what's amazing is that he, he sends His church, His people into every territory on the face of the earth because Jesus says, I don't care who the governor is. I don't care who the king is. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So I don't care if they tell you it's a closed country. I don't care if they tell you that the gospel can't be preached here. He says, go. I own it all. You go and tell them that there's a real king coming and that they can repent and believe and they can be a part of his kingdom. You go and teach them what I taught you. You go and show them that they can wear my name through baptism and that they can be joined to my people. Oh, and by the way, you remember that I'm with you as you do this. So in light of all this, Conclusion, I read this and I'm left unsatisfied with the way that we tend to think about the church. I don't think any of us have as high a view of the church as Jesus does. I don't think we do. Even the way we talk about it, I think joining the church is too weak a word we talk about it like it's, a, like it's a country club membership. Have you joined the church? If, if, if what we just read is Jesus' vision for the church, we're submitting to a church, aren't we? We're submitting to a people who are seeking to walk in obedience to the words of God that he's revealed through Jesus. And Jesus would, I think, say submitting to a local church is a major expression of how we submit to Jesus as king. Now, there's exceptions to that, you know, and I know what's coming, well, what happens when the church goes in error, and, and then I tell you, you know, we must obey God rather than man, because when the church errs, the church is no longer representing Jesus, Right? But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, in, or Paul says in Ephesians 1.23, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus considers himself inseparable from his church, from his people. God's old covenant people, they were identifiable, right? They, they shared an ethnicity. They had a land. They had circumcision. They kept the law to identify themselves. They had the Sabbath. Well, God has not left his new covenant people without identity markers. The identity markers for us is the gathered church, the Lord's Supper, baptism. This is how we're identified. This is where we plant our flag and say, I'm a Christian. I belong to Christ with those people over there. Together, we're together. And so the greatest political act that any of us can participate in, is digging into our local church and pouring ourselves into fulfilling the Great Commission. That's politics. That's eternal politics, to tell the world that the King is coming. And that's how we're political church. We should get so much more excited when we're talking about taking the gospel to the nations than we do when we talk about who's going to win the next election. And I am not minimizing the importance of who's going to win the next election. I'm, want, I'm simply wanting to maximize the greater importance of the king who's already reigning, right? What really gets you going? What really makes your heart skip a beat? What really makes you excited to talk about something? Is it is it the, the what's happening in Washington, D.C.? Does that really attract you so much? Or is it this calling that Jesus has given us? This is what, where it's at. This is where the most important stuff's happening. Let's pray together. Father, we we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the way you've not left us in the dark. God, we have